we're going to be in John chapter 21. It's an interesting chapter. I'm going to lay some background and some setup before I do this. This is the chapter that basically deals with Peter uh, and his sort of what we call this reinstatement by Jesus. Um, John was written uh, probably 25 to 30 years after the other three Gospels. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they end, you have the resurrected Lord. Um, but Peter is not left in the best of light. If you remember in all, all the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially but in John also, Jesus is disowned by Peter. It's a big deal. Um, and, and that's kind of how you leave it. Now, at the resurrection, uh, Peter sees the resurrected Lord. And it's there. The, all, the, all the guys see the resurrected Lord. And so, you know, you've seen that. But that's kind of how those three Gospels end. Now, the book of Acts, we see Peter kind of in the forefront of the early church. And it, it's an interesting thing to see that Peter had disowned Jesus. Uh, he, along with the other guys, saw the resurrected Lord. But now Peter comes kind of the forefront of the church. And you see that happening. So John, writing a long time after that, to some degree recognized that, that there needed to be more to the story of Peter. That his story with Jesus needed something. Because John and the other apostles knew some things that happened. Just the other three gospels didn't feel the need to have it in there. It wasn't part of the story. And, and so Peter's life is important. John's going to kind of rehabilitate Peter a little bit in the 21st chapter of the book. Now, it, some will say that because the 20th chapter ends, you know, with, you know, you know, you know go kind of John giving his uh, spiel about, you know, Christ, these things I've written to you, so, you know, neither Jesus, Son of God. And it's, it seems a natural place for John to end. Then you've got to come to chapter 21. It's like, well, why, did, why is that there? If you read and do research, and some of you do that on the Internet, and, and not everything you see on the Internet is always good. Uh, even in the world you know, where I live with all the books and the resources I have, there are some who think that the 21st chapter was added by someone later. Someone wanted to add that on. Uh, and so they don't, some, some discount whether John wrote it. You might read that or come across that. But most scholars, especially um, conservative ones, obviously, will say, no, that this is John's. It may be that John wrote the gospel and then thought for a moment and said, you know, I need, I need to add some more on it. He may have added it after he wrote it. Um, the book never, ever circulated. In other words, all the copies of John's gospel that are out there, there's no mention of the book ever circulating without the 21st chapter. It was always part of it. Uh, the language that is in there is, is very similar to, to John's style. It is John's style. Um, and because of that, we ought to understand, and the, all the early church fathers understood that John wrote the 21st chapter. So we ought to understand that. Probably the best reason, Dwight, it's kind of a little bit, seems like awkward, it doesn't fit. It's because there was no place to put this in the story. So you, you have, you know, Christ being um, betrayed by Judas. You know, Peter is, is, is kind of betraying Jesus in his own way, denying he knew, knew him. You have the resurrection accounts. There, there's nowhere in the middle of all that that it really fits. So it's, it's kind of like uh, sometimes that you'll have a book and, and, and especially if you read something that is technical, whatever field, it could be in mathematics, it could be in applied science, it could be in English history. Sometimes at the end of the book, there's like an appendix where there's more information about something mentioned earlier. Uh, 
It, it may be a little odd to call this an appendix. It's more like an epilogue. It's more like some things I want to summarize. But the best way to look at this is that when all is said and done, John wanted to make sure, clear in everyone's mind, as the Holy Spirit led him to write this, that you understood that Jesus reinstated Peter to where Peter needed to be. And so it helps to understand that. Now, <clears throat> when you read this chapter, and we're going to read all of it, and some of it will go pretty quick, but the, the main part where he reinstates Peter, uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of information. A lot, a lot of people have different ideas of what it all means. Uh, one of the things about John's style is he wrote with a lot of um, synonyms, a lot of imagery. He, he used a lot of different words the same thing. Uh, so when you read John, it's a little bit different than the other gospel writers in the Greek because he, he, would, he would use different words in different places to, to kind of give a richness and fullness to it. Uh, we might put it this way. Um, when, when I write uh, stuff, I use a lot. I, coming from the background I come in, I use a lot of contractions, a lot of ain'ts, isn'ts, wouldn't, don't, shouldn't. I use all that stuff. It's, I, don't, I don't write real formally. I'm not a good formal writer. I, I, when I write, and even if I write something that, that goes out to people that's somewhat formal, my style is that way. And, uh, you know, I, I don't put a lot of, you know, dad gums in it or any stuff like that. Like I normally speak, if you're around me a lot, sometimes I have some colorful ways of speaking. I don't put that in there, but I put a lot of just the way that I talk in there. We should probably understand that's what John's doing. Now, all four of the Gospels and all the New Testaments written in Greek, and as you'll see in a minute, when we come to the 21st chapter, he uses different Greek words in, in what he's saying. Um, so the question kind of is, did the things we see, Jesus' discussions with Peter, did it occur in Greek? Or did it occur in his native language? The language that these guys spoke and they grew up with was Aramaic, a form of Hebrew. Uh, in that day and age, unlike today, Americans, we tend to be pretty much monolithic. I speak one language, English. Uh, it's, a, it's a Texas version of English, but I still speak English. <clears throat> I grew up in South Texas. I should have learned Spanish, didn't do it. I, I don't know any French, don't know German. The only other languages that I really studied, Latin, Biblical Hebrew, Biblical Greek, are all dead languages. I don't know any living language but English. But back in that day and age, because there's so many cultures, people were, were usually multilinguistic. They spoke two or three, sometimes four languages. That would have been true of these guys. So you could be completely ignorant and do that. In, in Laredo, uh, what I thought fascinating is uh, people would come to get help from us who were, could have been born and raised in Laredo or you know, in Nuevo Laredo, but they spoke only Spanish. They were older. So their children or grandchildren, five- and six-year-old kids, would come and translate. They would speak in English and Spanish fluently. So he'd be a five or six year old kid who hadn't even started school, maybe, who we might think might be somewhat uneducated, having the ability to accurately talk in two different languages. That was the world they live in. So the story we have here is Jesus and some of his guys in Galilee. Somewhere between the time that uh, we see in the synoptics, go wait for me in Galilee, and they went, and the time in Luke, I mean, Acts chapter 1, where he ascends from Jerusalem. And so if these guys, there were seven of them, we'll see in a minute, were from Galilee, and they're just hanging around, they probably spoke their native tongue, Aramaic. And John wrote it in Greek. And I know that because, just think about today, some of you uh, maybe come from Hispanic background, Hispanic culture. Uh, we have folks who come, you know, in our culture, there are people who grew up speaking Spanish in the home, 
but when they converse, you know, out in, out in society, they speak English. If they write formally, you write in English. That's how we communicate. But if you're at home, you know, and Thanksgiving's coming, and it's just a family, they may speak Spanish, right? I mean, that, that's, that's common. So we ought to understand that. Now, the reason I tell you all that is because this helps us, under, keeps a simple understanding of what we're going to see. Because when you read through the chapter 21 and you read people write, there's a lot of different views. And one of the things that I say all the time, simplest explanation, most of the time is the best. I mean, it's just the simplest explanation is the best. I'm, I'm doing some studying and some researching on, on, the, you know, the, on the Revelation. All that stuff is crazy. And I keep reminding myself over and over, simplest explanation is normally the best. These were, these were common people. And John wrote a book to very common people. He was a common guy. And he was writing to common people that they could understand what's going on. So with that in mind, keep all those things in mind as we go through chapter 21 rather quickly. But it has some key stuff to it. Verse 1 says, after these things. What things? Well, after all that John has written. All that stuff. The resurrection of Christ. Jesus manifested or made himself known again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. The Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. By the way, only John uses the phrase Sea of Tiberias. Used in chapter 6 and chapter here and chapter 21. That's how you know John wrote it. There was Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, two other guys. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, well, we'll come also with you. And they got, all got into the boat that night and caught nothing. Now, it's interesting because I can't tell you how many times I have heard preachers say, or you read books, that John, you know, they, I mean, Peter, they criticized Peter because he, he abandoned his call to Christ to go back to his life of fishing. And I'm like, that's just, the, that's just dumb. I mean, think about it. What was Peter? He was a fisherman. So were James and John. So were Andrew. So most of the They were back in Galilee, his home, and they're waiting for Jesus. What do you want to do? Well, I don't know. When's Jesus coming? We don't know. Why don't we go fishing? Sounds good to me. Let's go fishing. I mean, think about it. Some of you, I say, amen. You probably caught as much as Peter did. Nothing. I mean, think about it. Wait, wait, wait. I don't know. You want to go hike up the Oregon Mountains? or hike? Let's go hike. Let's go out the nation. What do you want to do? I don't know. We're waiting for Jesus. Let's go play golf. I mean, they're waiting for Christ. They don't know when he's showing up. What is the natural thing to do? What you know to do. They went fishing. The important thing is, these were experienced fishermen. They went at night. They caught nothing. And that's the park hills. We had a guy in the military, and, and uh, he'd get up at like 3 in the morning, get his boat, go to Lake Calaveras on the south side, the north side of San Antonio, go to the south side of San Antonio, Lake Calaveras, fish for an hour, load it back up, get home by 6.37 to go to work. I mean, he spent four hours so he could fish one, and he usually caught nothing. But when the day was breaking, Jesus was on the beach. The disciples did not know it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you have any fish, do you? And they said, no. He said, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they did cast on the right, and they were not. So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number. You know, he just cost me fish. No, you know, they had been fishing all over the place. I'm sure they had tried all sides. And why would they, they didn't recognize Jesus. Why would they listen to Jesus? I, you know, I'm not a fisherman, but from what I gather from the people who are fishermen that I know, they're very simple-minded people. They'll follow any suggestion anybody gives to catch a fish. 
So I'm assuming in their very simple-minded fisherman way, that's what they did. Y'all, am I insulting y'all for some reason? I'm sorry. (laughs) Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, because now daylight, it was hard to recognize at dawn. They couldn't see him, but it was daylight. Okay. He put on his outer garment because, you know, they, they stripped down to their shorts, so to speak. And then he put on his T-shirt, for a way to put it that way, threw himself in the sea. That's just Peter. He's going to swim to Jesus. Why? Because they've been waiting for him. They've been waiting for him, and he hadn't showed up. So they went fishing to wait for him. Now he's there. He's going. And the other disciples came in the little boat. They got in the rowboat, came from the big boat. They weren't far behind. They had about 100 yards away, and they were dragging a net full of fish. So they're coming in the little boat, but they're dragging all the fish. That's the fish. kind of comical. Peter jumps in the water to swim to Jesus. The other six guys get in the little boat, haul all the fish in the little boat while Peter's swimming. You picture that. It's a little bit funny if you think about it. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. So there's fish and bread. I cannot tell you how many commentators say fish represents the catch from the sea and bread, bread, the harvest of the land, or it just was breakfast. You know what they ate a lot of back then? Fish and bread. Remember the story of the feeding the 5,000? It was fish and bread. I don't make much of the fact that they had fish and bread because that's what they ate, fish and bread. For me, it would be biscuits and gravy or, or something like that. I mean, they just ate what they ate. And so when they got on the land, and he was there, verse 10 says, Bring some of the fish which you now have caught. And Peter Went up, and Peter must have been the big, strong guy. He drew the net in, in the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So this was like an unbelievable amount of fish. Now, I cannot tell you how many times I have heard messages on the 153 fish and what that number means. And there are countless explanations. In fact, the fact that there are so many explanations of what the 153 means probably means it doesn't mean anything. One guy said, one view is, 12 squared plus 3 squared equals 153. 104, 12 squared is 144. 3 squared is 9, equals 153. I doubt if John's readers understood the concept of squaring numbers. They weren't advanced in math. It took me four years before I figured that out of high school math, before I could square anything off. Some said it represents this or that. Here's another possibility. John's describing how many fish they caught because they caught so many. Can you believe we caught 153 fish? That's unheard of. Nobody catches 153 fish. We had caught none. Jesus said, put your net on the right side. We put it. We caught 153 fish. It's amazing. That explanation seems to make sense. Otherwise, you're going to spend a lot of time preaching messages and trying to figure out what 153 means, at the end of the day, you have no idea what it means. Jesus said, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples ventured to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. Now, that probably was remindful of the time that he fed the 5,000. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifest to his disciples after he was raised. That's the third time they saw him in John. Now, here is the important part. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, some think he took him off to the side, some think he did in front of everybody. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. And he said again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, in these several verses, the word love, there's two different Greek words for love. The idea of of shepherding or, or tending or feeding, there's two different words used. Two different words used for sheep or lamb. Two different words used for knowing. And if, you, and, if, and if Jesus spoke in the Greek, and if Jesus and Peter were speaking in Greek, then something will tell you that these, all these different words have meaning. And, and so they give a lengthy explanation. The word love that Jesus uses the first two times, agapio, uh, do you love me with the highest kind of love? Peter says, I phileo you, I love you with the tenderness. The third time, Jesus says, you love me with tenderness. And Peter says, well, yes, you know I do, Lord, and he's Greek. And they had the idea that Peter wouldn't respond to the highest form of love, but he was hurt that Christ didn't think he had, you know, the, of affection. Two different words for, for sheep, um, the sheep are used, sheep and lambs, and there's meaning for that. Uh, one time he says tend, one time he says feed, and there's significance in that. And then there's two different words for know, and Peter says you know, one is oida, one is gonosko. One has to do with general knowledge, one has to do with experiential knowledge. And so they go into all this, and I've heard countless sermons preached about all this, trying to explain what all this means. I get confused keeping up with that. But if he spoke in Aramaic... There's not two different words for all those things. Aramaic's a much simpler language. John just wrote it in his colorful way. And if he did that, the meaning becomes really, really clear because it's so simple. Peter denied Jesus three times. And three times, Jesus says, do you love me? And the third time, he denied Jesus and the rooster crowed, Peter wept. And the third time, Jesus says, do you love me? He was grieved. And here's the thing. The first time Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? What, what do the word these mean? Well, <laughs> it could mean, do you love me more than these fish? And sometimes you hear the people say that Peter left Jesus to go back to fishing. So Jesus is saying, do you love me more than this fishing? Yeah, that just doesn't cut it for me. Really does. That just doesn't make sense. That's just like, ah, come on. He might be saying, do you love me more than you love these other guys? Well, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. But if you remember the night that Jesus was betrayed, and he said, Peter, you're going you're gonna to deny me, betray me. Peter said, these other guys may betray you. I never will. Why? Well, because I love you more than these guys love you. So Peter said, Peter, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me more than these other six guys love me? Because, you know, you betrayed me. And he says, Lord, you know I love you. He didn't say I love you more than them. He just says, Lord, I love you. And so he says, I want you to, I want you to feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. In other words, Peter, you need, now, what he's saying, I want you to go back and be the pastor I called you to be. Remember, for all the said and done, at the end of the day, these men were leaders. They, it was the concept of pastoring. Jesus was the good shepherd, the great shepherd. These were the under-shepherds of the church. I want you to take care, Peter, of my sheep. I want you, Peter, to take care of my sheep. So then he said again, Peter, do you love me? He didn't say more than that. He said, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know I love you. And he says, well then, I want you, I want you to tend, 
tend to my sheep. Then he asked that third time, oh, Peter, by the way, do you love me? And Peter's grief says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He says, then you feed my sheep. Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes. And the guy that gets up to speak to everybody is Peter. And Peter feeds the sheep. And the leader of the church in the early part of the life of Acts was Peter. Now, I know sometimes Peter said, well, Peter wasn't the leader of the church. And, and I've said this before. Just read your Bible. Just read the New Testament. How do you read the first part of Acts and not really believe that Peter was the mover and shaker of the early church? The, other than Jesus, it's pretty much all about Peter. And so this is where that comes from. Now think about what Jesus is doing. Think about the unbelievable compassion, the unbelievable mercy. Luke tells us that when Peter denied Jesus the third time, the rooster crowed, and Jesus saw Peter and looked straight at him. He, he heard Peter deny him. He heard him and looked at him. And so now here's Jesus telling this guy he's invested so much in. All right, Peter, here we go. You denied knowing me. Now, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Now, after he said that, this is what Jesus said in verse 8. It doesn't get better for Peter, okay? Truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen, I say to you. When you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish. Now, that's the reminder of you were strong. And he just carried a net of 153 fish to the shore. He's a pretty strong guy. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now he said this signifying the type of death he would glorify God. And when he spoke and he said, follow me. Now, so it's not just as he reinstate Peter. He says, oh, by the way, Peter, you're going to die. It's not going to be pleasant. Now, when John writes this, Peter has been dead 20, 25 years. We are told by the early church fathers, Tertullian tells us that he was crucified. Origen said he was crucified upside down. Well, I don't, upside down may not be right. But probably it would have been under Nero's persecution, Peter was probably crucified. Stretching out of the arms. And so John tells us, knowing that Peter was already dead, he said, Jesus was saying, you're going to die this way. And so he reinstates the call to Peter to follow me. Now, uh, some, some think that Jesus is walking away. He, either he's through and he's starting to walk away and says, Peter, come follow me. Or that he and Peter went off for a distance and he's walking back and says, follow me. Probably true to that. I, I tend to think that it's, it's a reiteration of the call at the very beginning Jesus said to Peter, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And now as he reinstates Peter, he's reinstating Peter. He is saying to him, all right, I've called you to love me. Called you to take care of my sheep. I've told you how you're going to die. Peter, you need to come follow me. That's what you need to do. You know what Peter does? He follows Jesus. Now, here's the interesting thing. 
Peter turned around and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Because they were walking. So there's that, like I said, he was probably going somewhere, bringing Peter. John was there. There's that twofold meaning. John does that a lot. He gives twofold meaning. Follow me literally, but come follow me. Uh, the one who would lean back in his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who's the one who's going to betray you? See, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Okay, tell me how I'm going to die. What about him? That'd be John. Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So he's saying, John, Peter, don't worry about what's going to happen to John. Your only call in life is to follow me. Whatever anybody else does, whatever else happens to them, simply doesn't matter. So, therefore, John says, this same went out among the brothers that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? So some thought that John was going to stay alive until Jesus came back, which he obviously didn't do. Now, John lived longer than any of them. He's the only one to die a natural death, though he did suffer. But all Jesus was saying, and John's clarifying, he's just simply saying, don't worry about him. Now, John concludes his book by saying, this is a disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So this is me writing. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. The four Gospels end in the scriptures, but end with the closing of John, the last one written. With him saying, you could look at all the things that Jesus did. And all the books you could write couldn't contain them all. When, when, um, when I study and I read people commenting on the things that maybe Jesus said. I, did, I found this to be true a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, uh, when I did all my doctoral work on the Sermon on the Mount. How many people you know, talked about, this is the only time Jesus preached this. And there are versions of it here and there. And Matthew would have got it from these other sources. <laughs> and I kept thinking, because there was a lot of scholars who would, who would say this, say what I'm about to say. Matthew hung with Jesus. He probably heard Jesus preach this message all the time. Why would Jesus only preach this message once? They just record it once in an abbreviated form. We just get a small sampling of what Jesus said. Uh, there was a movement a while back, it still lingers on a little bit, called the Jesus Movement. It's a very ultra-liberal, Christian ultra-liberal movement. And even liberals today kind of discount it. Where they tried to decide what was the things Jesus said, so that all the stuff that's in red in your Bible, they would go through and they would vote whether or not Jesus would say this. And black means, I think black means he didn't, gray they weren't sure, and red that he did. And then they would just tally up the vote, see what he said. Now this is the crazy thing. Think about the craziness of this. The only thing we know about Jesus, the only quotes we have about Jesus is all, is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So you're going to go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the only place he's ever quoted, and you're going to tell us, almost 2,000 years later, 1,940 years later, which things he actually said and didn't say, based on what? And when I think about what John says, he said, Jesus said so much stuff that you couldn't put it, and back then, he's talking about books back then, you couldn't put it in all the books we could write. We couldn't, he said, we couldn't write down everything that Jesus said. 
So we just wrote some of it. We understand by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. We just wrote what we could. And John wrote his gospel. At the end of this gospel, he reminds us of why Peter was the guy to lead the church in the early stages. Because Jesus put him in charge. And you think about that in our life. And the things we sometimes do, and it's, it's so humbling as a, as a follower of Christ to think. And as your pastor, one of my biggest prayers, and I've said this many times, Lord, don't let me screw this up. Because no one can mess this up more than me. There's not a one of you out there that can mess this church up more than me. And so I just keep praying, don't let me do that. Don't let me do that. And I think about Peter. And all that he did to mess everything up. Because he did. And what did Jesus do? He said, Peter, I'm going to put you back where you need to be. And every single one of us, every one of us, mess things up as a follower of Christ. And we say to ourselves, how can God ever use us? If God didn't use people who mess things up, there's no one left to use. I mean, think about it. who Who is he going to use if he didn't use Peter and all the other guys who abandoned Jesus? If he wasn't going to use, who was bad? Who, think about using Paul. Paul was the most unbelievable, passionate person in persecuting Christians. Wouldn't it be great? If Jesus just decides to flip Paul around, let him become a Christian and take all that passion to no longer persecute the church, but instead to grow the church. Paul would write, I'm the worst sinner of all by the grace of God. So the one thing about Peter's reinstatement that's so important is to get by all all the different interpretations and people's opinion. Oh, he left his calling to go fishing. No, he didn't. No, there's two different kinds of love and all that. No, that's too complicated. It's too complicated. Peter messed up. Jesus put him back where he needed to be. Because that's what Jesus does. And if he does it for Peter, he'll do it for us. If we serve you. All right. Comments or questions you may have that I can help answer. Yes, sir. You said Jesus used agape two times. Peter responded phileo three times. And I just said that, I don't, that Jesus spoke Aramaic and not Greek, that John wrote that. So John, Peter didn't use those words. He spoke Aramaic. John wrote that because that was John's style of writing. And so one of the things I said is, don't make too much into it. You're going to go down a slippery slope. So I don't make anything of that. That was just, John does that the whole time of his book. Here's what you do. If you go get the Greek New Testament of John and read it, you will see that all the time. But since most of you can't read Greek, (laughs) you're just going to have to trust me on this. He does this all the time. In fact, it has been said by some brilliant scholars 
that John is the one New Testament writer of all the others that makes no distinction between agape and phileo. He uses those interchangeably more than anybody else so that there is no distinction in John's gospel. So I would say then there's no distinction. All Jesus is asking him, if we spoke in the Aramaic, he would just simply say, do you love me? And there's just one understanding of love that's giving yourself to me. That's how he would ask him that. So that's all there is to it. Do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you. Said it three times. What else? Aramaic is basically a deriver is is a is a, a type of Hebrew. Aramaic is a no. There's no there's no Greek in it. Aramaic is Hebrew. It's a type of Hebrew. Um, like you know, there's different types of English. Like you know, if, you, if in certain places, in, through time, English has developed from what you know. If you go read Chaucer, English in Chaucer's day is almost like a foreign language. So Aramaic is a derivation uh, of Hebrew. And so you look at Jesus on the cross, Matthew and Mark, having him saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He's speaking Aramaic at that point. John was a fisherman. Yes. And he normally spoke in Aramaic. Where did he get his training to write in Greek? So one of the things I said early on at the beginning is that these guys were multilingual. And so they would have all spoke Aramaic and Greek. Just like many people today who grew up here in our area of the country, if you come from a Hispanic background, grow up speaking Spanish, but they know English as well because they have to in commerce. English is the language of commerce. English is the language of society and culture. It's the language of interaction, the language of government. Uh, though I know they put things in Spanish, it's still language of English is the language. So it would be like that. They would speak Aramaic. They would speak uh, Greek. They probably spoke Latin. Um, they may have even spoken other languages. So they would speak at least two, if not three or four languages. So he would have been fluent in Greek just as much as Aramaic. Just like I'm using a story at the very beginning of the little five-year-old girl who could translate English and Greek, uh, English and Spanish back and forth in Laredo, that she, she'll always be able to do that. She can think in both languages. Um, so Joe, for instance, can not only speak English and Spanish, he can think in English and Spanish, neither one very well, but uh, he can think in both. And Barry, for instance, speaks and in, thinks in English and Cajun, which go think about that for a moment. That's scary. I hammered two guys at one time. That's pretty cool. <laughs> what else? Yes, sir. How did John write in the third person instead of the first person? Uh, most scholars would tell you that the, that the reason he did that, um, and because he wrote last, is that he didn't. His purpose was not to draw attention to himself at all, but in his humility. And, and by the time John wrote, he was the last guy standing, and um, he, everybody would have known who John was. So. He didn't hit it. So it was a very humbling way of writing. What else? Okay. Yeah. I'll see you on Sunday.